Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Uh It is another Tuesday, Election Day, uh, November 3rd, just two weeks away. Although I have to tell you something that I think is really an interesting observation. I, I got a post, I can't remember if it was on Facebook, Twitter, where it was, from Michael Jablonski. Jablonski was uh, a top advisor to Roy Barnes when uh, Barnes was governor of Georgia, worked with him in the campaign, and also has done some work as an attorney for the Democratic Party here in the state. And Jablonski sent a, a, a note saying, you shouldn't be talking about Election Day. You should be talking about November 3rd as the final day that people can cast their ballots. And of course, that's really a very uh, a worthy observation uh, because uh, we're still in the middle of early voting. Right now, um, we have uh, a total of one point, just about 1.7 million votes cast already in the state, according to the Secretary of State's office. They expect more than 5 million people to vote in the long run. Uh, just to break it down very quickly, absentee votes have co- have been accepted at a rate of 711,600 absentee ballots that have been accepted, uh, and uh, 982,000, almost a million people have already voted in person over the first week plus of uh, voting. So um, it continues to look as if we're going to have an enormous turnout by the time all of this is over with. All right, lots to talk about. Let's get right to our panel. It's Tuesday, which means Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is my partner on the show. Tamar, we missed you. You took a week off and got a little rest before the final push. I I hope you do feel re-energized as we go into the last two weeks. I am ready, but in denial that this election is two weeks away. I can't believe it. (laughs) As I said yesterday, it's coming at us with the speed of a bullet train. It's just unbelievable. Mary Margaret Oliver, state representative from Decatur, Democrat, is with us again today. Mary Margaret, um, I'm really looking forward to your observations about, especially we're going to talk about what's going on in the state house, where, of course, you serve Uh, in terms of fundraising and how the election is uh, moving forward there. But how are you doing, Mary Margaret? I'm great. Good morning. I'm I'm on Tybee Island this morning, so I'm very, very lucky this morning and happy to be looking at the beach. And tomorrow, I want to thank you for doing our research on what malportrait really exists in the Kelly Leffler house. (laughs) We're going to be (laughs) caught. And I'm grateful. We needed that fact check. You're exactly right, and we're going to talk about just that in a moment. Mary Margaret, one last question. You are a huge fan, as I've said on the show before, of the New Yorker Festival, which unfortunately was virtual this year. Did you still nevertheless find it meaningful doing it It online? I I did watch it online, and I did enjoy it. It just seemed a little weirder. The personalities seemed a little more weird than they do in person online. But we'll be back next year, I'm sure. Please, please be that the case, yes. Uh, We're also joined today by Mary Margaret's partner in teaching Sunday school, uh, but he is a Republican, Edward Lindsay, former state representative 
from Atlanta, now the head of government relations for the state of Georgia practice at Denton's, the world's largest law firm. Edward, how are you holding up? Uh, well, actually, you know, like most Georgians, I'm in a state of mourning, uh, given the events of the last weekend uh, in which both the Bulldogs and our Braves went down. But uh, but now that uh, that's behind us, I can start focusing on the next two weeks of the election. Well, Edward, thank you for joining us today, despite the fact that this is a, a hard day for all of you who are Georgia sports fans. I, I, I sympathize uh, uh, with you. All right, let's get right to the conversation about yesterday's debate. The Atlanta Press Club and GPB partnered uh, in putting together all of the debates, or really the Press Club's debates. GPB's uh, role is to broadcast them online and on television. And yesterday we had two uh, Senate debates for Senate race number two. That's the race with 20 candidates. And so the press club had to make a decision about the fact they can't have 20 people on the stage. So they essentially broke it into two debates. And the uh, second debate was um, the one which had what, what I think most people would agree the polling shows essentially are the top tier candidates, although there are, you could make arguments that that isn't quite the case with some of the candidates who were in that second debate. There was controversy around breaking it up that way. But the facts are the facts. Um, we do think this race, the way the polling is going, shows this race coming down to just several candidates. And Tamar, before I ask you to uh, weigh in, let's point out and play a little sound. Uh, the major players in this debate essentially were Republicans, Doug Collins and Kelly Leffler, who are polling well in the 20s, typically, and Democrat Raphael Warnock, who's right up there and in some polls ahead of both of them. And, and much of the action uh, revolved around the three of them. And certainly, as Doug Collins and Kelly Leffler uh, uh, fight each other for the right to move into a runoff, they really went at it tooth and nail. Let's play an exchange between the two of them. You're going to hear Doug Collins first. Uh, and he's asked, Leffler is, um, has said over and over again, China has to pay a price because it was China that gave us the coronavirus. Uh, she's been hard on China, as the Trump administration is. And Collins began this exchange uh, by uh, suggesting that maybe Kelly Leffler, whose husband owns the New York Stock Exchange, uh, is in a position where she could do something about Chinese involvement in uh, in the United States. So let's listen to how this unfolded, and then we'll talk about it. Kelly, you talk tough about China, but you refuse to delist corporations that are owned by the Chinese Communist Party from the New York Stock Exchange, which you own. So I have a question for you. Do you still have the $56,000 portrait of Chairman Mao hanging in your foyer as it was seen on social media? Seems a little hypocritical. I I'm, glad, I'm glad you asked that question, uh, Congressman. You know, I think Georgians are tired of lies. Um, hardworking Georgians want the truth. They're tired of a campaign that has been filled with lies directed at me. Let me tell you the truth. Governor Kemp appointed me because I am the true conservative in this race. Now, look, you've said I have no place here, that I'm only here because of my husband, that I should do something I'm qualified for. 
But you know what? You've attacked my hair, my makeup, how I talk, my clothes, where I'm from. You've lied about me. You've lied about my family. And let me tell you, here's the truth. I'm here because I've earned everything I got. I am the true conservative. I don't have to have a record that I have to lie about and cover up. I encourage everyone to look at Doug Collins for Senate.com and understand he is one of the most liberal Republicans in the U.S. House of Representatives. That's why Governor Kemp appointed me to the Senate. And I'm fighting for every single Georgian's chance to live the American dream that I was so blessed to live. Wow, I just really don't know where to start with the most amazing lies that just started. I've never mentioned anything personally about her fixtures, hair, or anything else, but it's amazing what she talked about me. And she spent over $35 million doing it. You know what's really interesting here, Kelly? This is really the true issue. There are lies going on. It's the lies about what you used to do when you work with Planned Parenthood, when you work with Michael Bloomberg, when you won't delist companies. You see, there's a choice here. You don't have to wait for legislation. You could actually go against the Chinese Communist Party right now, but you won't. All right, tomorrow we let that play out a bit because it really did lay out a lot of the fight that's been going on between the two of them. I'm going to give you, you'll start, and then I'll give everybody a chance at what you just heard. Look, she didn't answer Doug Collins' question about China, but I thought that was the most powerful moment of the debate for Kelly Leffler. You're not going to hear a Republican like her talk about feminism or, you know, kind of highlight her gender in that way. But that was the most powerful, like, rah, rah, I am woman, hear me roar, you know, stop talking about me kind of response. And I thought it was a really powerful moment for you, for her. I also thought, um, you know, it's, it's kind of a good taste of the Doug Collins we saw at the debate, very pugnacious. He's laughing at some of the answers that he, uh, that some of his, uh, competitors threw at him kind of a scrappy, <clears throat> pardon me, come from behind sort of um, sort of style that that sort of works for him, I think, with with a lot of his supporters. So I don't necessarily think that this debate is going to change um, anybody standing, especially those top three with Warnock, Collins and Leffler. But I think it did show kind of a great snapshot of where they are and how they've how they interacted with each other uh, over the course of this race. So, Mary Margaret, I think to pick up on what Tamar said, and by the way, yes, Tamar did uh, do a little research to, sh- to tell us. Doug Collins at least says that um, Kelly Leffler and her husband have a Andy Warhol portrait of Mao in um, in their home. It, we were surprised, Mary Margaret, that it was only valued at $56,000 because Warhol portraits go for a lot more than that. Nevertheless, one of the things that Leffler did to pick up on what Tamar said was she did adopt this kind of feminist line. Um, she said, Doug Collins, you only think I have value in relation to my husband. You uh, said that I should go do something that I'm more suited to doing. So in that sense, Tamar makes a good point about Leffler kind of uh, staking out territory as a genuine feminist here. I remember, have to remember personally trying to do trying to prepare for a debate, uh, a statewide election debate, and how difficult and how nerve-wracking that kind of effort is. You have to balance being authentic and responsive with a prepared remarks. She clearly had prepared that uh, series of comments you gave. There's, there is a lot of conversation about her hair and her dress and appearance, and that is true 100% of the time with women candidates. So that felt like something that she should have prepared for. On the other hand, to me, it came across in many of her ways she presented herself yesterday as too prepared, a little bit robotic, 
uh, American Dream Theory, I got work for what I got. Uh, I, that kind of repetitive messaging, um, I don't think felt as authentic. Doug Collins, one of his skills is he comes across as an authentic Georgian. His pugnacious, arguing, um, pointed, more specifically pointed, for instance, the mouth portrait is a good example of a specific pointing at uh, something that will be remembered by the voters. We're talking about it today. Whereas she comes across as, to me, a little bit more message, a little bit copying the president's message, and um, not quite as authentic. The two of them, however, I think it's fair to say, made a good attempt at going after each other. I mean, their plan was to go after each other. I think that came across. I think she came across as strong, although not quite as authentic as he did in my view. Well, yeah, um, a a few quick points. Uh, I agree uh, with with Tamar's analysis. Uh, The clip that we heard was uh, Senator Leffler's uh, best point in in the debate, and it was a very strong point in the debate. Uh, It did knock down one of the weaknesses uh, that, that many people, particularly on the Republican side, have had about her, and that is whether or not she can be a strong campaigner, uh, particularly in a runoff, which we all expect to have happened. She did show through that clip that, that she can be a stronger campaigner. Um, I served with Doug Collins along, and Mary Margaret did as well. Uh, I do have to chuckle anytime someone questions whether or not he's an authentic or, or true conservative, because I can tell you right now, he, he clearly is. He does also come across as and, and rightfully so, is, is very authentic in his beliefs, and that's always been Doug's strong point. Um, I also agree with Mary Margaret, having uh, been in politics myself for a long time. Uh, you know, I, I've had to watch my friends uh, who are women uh, in politics have to go through a lot of hurdles that men in politics don't, particularly at debate time. Nobody ever questioned my, my uh, choice between either a dark blue or gray suit and the choice of my tie. Uh, but, uh, you know, women get unfairly critiqued on a number of things uh, about their appearance that men in politics never do. And at some point, we need to get beyond that. To me, yeah. what was so interesting about that moment is it was this flashback to kind of the, the moment when the governor picked Kelly Leffler. She was kind of seen as this nod to the suburban woman and the the pull that that group holds right now in, in our current elections. Um, and, and I think it's something talking about how she's been criticized about her hair and her the way she looks that I think a lot of suburban women or any woman can um, can really relate to. So I, I think it, it was kind of a wink to that. But also it shows that that right now her and Doug Collins are doing anything they can to win over any sliver of voters. Um, they're they're brawling or, you know, duking it out presumably for that second spot in the January runoff, presuming that Raphael Warnock can consolidate support on the left to get that that first spot. So anything that will give them an edge, and you saw them try any sort of technique to win people over yesterday. So I, I will add to this. before I want to play another clip. I want to play. I'm sorry, let me, and I'll get back to you, but I want to play another clip, and then we'll continue our conversation. But I do also want to say that I don't think anything in that exchange, as interesting as it was to watch them parry back and forth, uh, enlightened voters in any way about where these two stand 
in terms of the issues that they represent. Uh, but let's move on, and, and then, Edward, I'll get back to you. Here was a moment that also featured Leffler that I think will have an interesting impact, perhaps not in the um, special election in November, but could in the runoff, should she make it there, be something Democrats will try to take advantage of. We're going to hear Matt Lieberman ask Kelly Leffler a question, and you'll hear her answer. Kelly, can you name something that President Trump has said or done uh, that you disagree with? No, because I am proud to be the only U.S. senator with a 100 percent voting record with President Trump. I've been named the most conservative senator in the U.S. Senate, and I've been endorsed by National Right to Life. That's because I will always stand up for conservative values. Edward, when when a candidate says they can't think of a thing that they disagree with with the president of the United States, um, I think it does make people wonder how independent that person is capable of being. Well, there is a difference between uh, standing and supporting someone and always falling in line. Uh, and and uh, I've generally found over the years that the, the folks who, who can show a, a certain degree of independence from time to time always comes across as stronger. Uh, so I, I do think that that may very well be a, a line that, the Democrats can possibly use against her in a runoff, although I still think that whether or not Collins or Senator Leffler gets into a runoff, I think they'll do very well against uh, Reverend Warnock. But but you're right. I mean, uh, folks want to hear that uh, whoever gets elected from the U.S. Senate, whoever gets elected from Georgia to the U.S. Senate, will stand primarily with Georgians uh, and want to see a certain streak of independence. I, I can't disagree with that. It, Mary it Margaret? It was a good question, uh, and uh, I thought she failed in how she answered it. Uh, she did not sound in any way uh, responsive or, or personally thoughtful, if that's a goal in any debate, to sound personally thoughtful. Another contrast that's very interesting to me is that she said she'd never heard of QAnon, or she didn't know anything about it, which, of course, parrots, again, what the president says, which, of course, is totally unbelievable. I mean, that's, that's not believable that she doesn't know what they... By contrast, Collins says he doesn't support QAnon. I was very interested in that exchange. Again, she comes across as message uh, parroting uh, Trump specifically and not personally responsive to a fairly thoughtful questions. So I thought it was a weak response on her part. If, if I could add one additional thing to that, to my point, Bill is that a lot of times people in politics are running for office or strongest uh, when they do show that independence. And, and I, you know, the, the best reference to that is, is President Clinton's sister soldier moment in, in 1992, in which he sort of drew a sharp line between certain more liberal, arguably more radical elements on the left. And whoever gets into that runoff is going to have to do the same thing. Reverend Warnock is going to need to have a sister soldier moment as well. So the, the, the question is, when does that moment come uh, for any of those politicians? I think for Doug Collins, it came when he very clearly denounced uh, uh, QAnon uh, in the debate. Uh, and we'll have to see uh, when uh, Senator Leffler or Reverend Warnock do the same when it comes to, to their more extreme base. 
you know, Georgians may or may not want an independent uh, kind of thinker, but I think for the purposes of this round one of voting on November 3rd, that's not necessarily what Republican voters want to see. Trump is so wildly popular with the base that both Kelly Loeffler and Doug Collins are trying so hard to appeal to. Those are the people who turn out reliably on Election Day, and that's who they are fighting over uh, more than any other group. So I think right now it doesn't make sense for Kelly Loeffler or really Doug Collins to show an independent streak right now. I think you got to show how you're in lockstep with the president. And the poll numbers that we see over and over again when it comes to Republican voters in Georgia, Trump is so wildly popular that it doesn't make sense to, to denounce him strongly in any way. You know, it, it occurs to me, I'm sort of thinking about this as we're talking, and I just realized that the notion that Democrats can use this against Kelly Loeffler, should she be the Republican who emerges into a runoff, if, if there's a Democrat and a Republican in the runoff, uh, if Trump loses the general election, you're, you're no longer going to make a whole lot of use out of that, right. except in a more abstract way to say, uh, oh, well, she's going to continue voting along the lines that a Trump would have uh, wanted her to uh, if he were going to continue in office. So that's kind of interesting. All right, let's talk about the Democrat. You both made the, uh, all of you have made the QAnon point. And before we play a couple of Democratic sound bites, um, you know, it is interesting, Tamar. Uh, President Trump watches TV nonstop. Kelly Leffler is a sophisticated, really smart individual who's is worldly in many, many ways. So this notion that neither of them, who what's QAnon, never heard of them, really does become just beyond believable. It's one of the most classic techniques in the book that I dealt with daily in D.C., asking senators or congressmen, oh, about this latest Trump tweet, have you seen it? It's smart. You pretend you don't. I haven't seen it. I can't comment on it because I haven't seen it. And it's better than getting, you know, quoted in a light that you wouldn't want, that you might regret later, or having to kind of split hairs, you know, and if you're, you're Kelly Leffler, you've gotten endorsed by Marjorie Taylor Greene up in the 14th district, you don't want to do anything to alienate those conservative voters up there who, who might be likely to vote for you, um, or who would very willingly go to Doug Collins if, if she does denounce them. All right, Edward, uh, we, Ed Tarver, the Democratic candidate from Augusta, yeah. Matt Lieberman, the Atlanta Democrat, and uh, Raphael Warnock, as we've said, were all on the stage yesterday. And Warnock got a little bit of a taste of how Republicans might uh, uh, attack him should he emerge into the, the runoff. Um, and it happened when Kelly Leffler uh, made a comment to Warnock. Let's listen. You've called police officers, thugs, bullies, and gangsters. You've characterized them as a threat to our children. Will you apologize to our hardworking men and women in law enforcement and to Georgia families for these dangerous and hurtful attacks? I have deep respect for police officers and law enforcement. And uh, I believe that the Senator knows this. Certainly the members of the law enforcement know this. Uh, this is why they've come to my church on a couple of occasions as they remembered fallen officers who died uh, in the tour in uh, the line of duty. Uh, so I support law enforcement. Uh, they've come to my church many times. We work together. I think it's possible to appreciate the work that law enforcement members do and at the same time hold them accountable. Edward. Hey. So it's going to be a, a, um, a point of attack 
for him because in addition to, you know, he has expressed support for law enforcement. That's true. But he's also from time to time uh, taken on some more extreme language toward law enforcement and, and count on those sound bites being mentioned. Uh, I would also like to add one, one additional point uh, about uh, Ed Tarver. And it's, it's interesting that he's never really gotten the trans- traction uh, that uh, that some folks thought he might deserve. I, I served with him in the in the in the legislature. He was a, a senator from Augusta, and extremely well respected when he was there. He was a U.S. attorney uh, under in the uh, Obama administration uh, for the district uh, surrounding Augusta. And it's been kind of interesting to me that Ed Tarver is kind of an afterthought. I mean, everyone talks about Matt Lieberman uh, possibly being a spoiler, but they don't talk about Ed Tarver much. And and I found that to be interesting, given uh, his distinguished career. I just want to add that plug in for, for my old friend, Senator Tarver. I, I think Reverend Warnock. I think Mervyn Warnock did really well yesterday. He he sounds different to me. Of course, I'm a supporter of him, and I'm irritated at Lieberman, and uh, less so irritated at Tarver because he really does have credentials to run. But it it wasn't a winning opportunity for. Uh, U.S. Attorney Senator Tarver's this time. It's a winning opportunity uh, for Reverend Warnock. And I think that as Reverend Warnock has emerged um, through very high-quality ads that look different and sound different than the other candidates, uh, I think that his strength as a candidacy uh, is emerging to the Georgia voters. And as you'll contrast him, as he will be contrasted, because I certainly predict he will be in the runoff. I, I, very hard to predict for me w- whether uh, Senator Leffler or Doug Co- Congressman Collins will be there. I just can't call that myself. But Reverend Warnock is going to be a unique candidate. Uh, he did a good job yesterday of articulating the lines he's going to have to walk. And I think the the comment that directed the the listeners who will be listening more and more back to law enforcement come to my church. Uh, we pray together when an officer has fallen. Um, th- that is very authentic uh, in the black church community. Law enforcement is part of the community in most of those churches uh, as uh, stand-up important members. So I think that he has a unique opportunity to do extremely well in this race. And I certainly predict that based on yesterday's performance, um, that he's going to emerge very skilled in walking this line and uh, and educating the voters out there as to who he is and what his background is as a native Georgian out of the Savannah Public Housing Project through Morehouse to probably the most famous black church on the planet. Um, I was pleased with how it went yesterday for him who I'm endorsing. All right, all right, let me. I've got to get to a break, but I want to play one more soundbite uh, very quickly because I think it makes a point about what Matt Lieberman may face in the aftermath of the debate. Uh, Tamar, here is a line from Matt Lieberman's closing argument, and then I want to ask you a question about it. Look, folks, don't vote for one of these three stooges. And I mean that literally. Kelly, Don, the Reverend, each of them is already in the pocket of one or two folks in Washington and Atlanta. And what that means for us is that if they're elected, they will report first and foremost to that person, not you and me. We have a chance this year 
to vote for something other than an establishment Democrat or an establishment Republican. For the first time in a long time, there are more than just two flavors on the menu. Tamar, with all due respect to Matt Lieberman, um, I felt that in, uh, throughout this debate, there were many, he had sort of a number of Ed Kennedy, Edward Kennedy moments. I don't know that he was able to articulate his reason for being in this race as clearly he did in the end finally say something. But there's going to be, I would think, increased pressure now for him to get out of the way. What do you think? I mean, that pressure has been there almost since day one. You're right. That was his big moment. And it came in the last five minutes of the debate when I think a lot of people might have been tuning out. He really needed to shine Today, or, or sorry, yesterday, as did Ed Tarver, I don't really think either of them had that moment. Um, and, and that's, you know, a, a missed opportunity on their end. They let Raphael Warnock cruise, and uh, they, they couldn't afford to do that. All right. Thank you for uh, your comments about that. It was interesting to hear you all talk about this debate. We got a lot more to talk about on the show today, but let's get to a break and come back with more on today's Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Mary Margaret Oliver, Edward Lindsay, and Tamar Hallerman joining me on today's Political Rewind. Uh, one quick program note before we continue the conversation. Uh, the Senate Judiciary Committee, of course, is expected to uh, uh, confirm the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court and pass it on to the whole Senate. We're now being told that Mitch McConnell may schedule weekend sessions so they can vote her onto the court as soon as Monday. Well, tomorrow we're going to talk to uh, three attorneys with some expertise in constitutional law. Fred Smith, Professor Fred Smith at Emory University, one of the real experts on uh, the subject, along with uh, Amy Steigerwald and Chuck Cook. And we're going to look at what Amy Coney Barrett means to the Supreme Court and look at things like what exactly does it mean to be an originalist these days, plus more. So I hope you'll join us uh, for that show. All right. Ed, Edward Lindsay, um, it's, we've been watching an interesting trend, I think, um, unfold in Georgia as the election approaches. We we've talked on this show in the, uh, the past week about the fact that as third quarter fundraising totals came in, Democrats in national races, Congress, uh, Senate, uh, President, were really eclipsing Republicans when it came to fundraising by, by huge margins. But, um, but, but James Salzer uh, put a piece, uh, filed a piece for the AJC the other day which showed us that it's Republicans in legislative races uh, who are really uh, raking in big money. And I want to get your uh, opinion on this one thing. So here's, here's just a couple of lines from that uh, story. The House Republican Political Action Committee, which continued fundraising during the session, and that's perfectly legal, the candidates can't raise, or the sitting legislators can't raise money, but outside groups can, took in about $1.5 million 
between July 1st and the end of September. Meanwhile, Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan's independent committee took in 276000 uh, and the Senate caucus effort reaped more than 550000 and the state Republican Party is reporting having raised almost $11 million during that same time, about 10 times what the Democratic Party collected. Edward, um, considering the, the control of the House particularly is at stake, what does that kind of fundraising mean? Well, first off, you have to sort of divide money into three different pots. Uh, professional donors, uh, grassroots donors in-state, and grassroots donors out-of-state. And so it's no real surprise, for instance, on the national level that Senator, by the, Vice President Biden is doing so well with fundraising because he's perceived by many to be the front runner in the race. Uh, on the Georgia level, um, you know, both I think uh, a lot of the professional donors are, are backing uh, the incumbents who are largely perceived uh, to be uh, likely to win in November, and they probably will win. I do expect the Democrats to make some gains in the U in the state Senate and make a, a, some gains in the House, uh, but in all likelihood, uh, Republicans will, will remain firmly in control in both bodies. Let me also add that we need to look beyond simply how much money is being raised, Bill, and look at how the money is being spent. Uh, for instance, a, a lot of money on TV ads. I question how much good that really does at this point because you're not really persuading anybody anymore. Uh, right now, the money that has been raised by both sides ought to be concentrated on getting out the vote uh, with their folks that they already understand will be their supporters because uh, I think maybe my dog may be the only undecided left in Georgia uh, when it comes to who they support. I think everybody else is already fixed on who they will support, and the question is, will they turn out? And and that's going to be the key. And you've seen that, and that's why there's so much focus right now in some papers, more sophisticated papers in journalism, on on that get out the vote part. That's why the ad for by not the ad, but the 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 article in the New York Times this week was so interested regarding uh, the voter registration efforts by Republicans in key battleground states of Pennsylvania, North Carolina, and Florida, and other places. So look at not just how much money is being raised, but look at how it's being spent at this point in the, in the final two weeks. Uh, Mary Margaret, uh, I, 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 we're going to pick up, by the way, on that New York Times story in a couple of minutes. But Mary Margaret, um, you need to pick up 16 seats, Democrats do, to win control of the House. Is, is, is the fact that Republicans are doing a better job raising money for legislative races uh, uh, an indication to you of, uh, of that it's going to be a much tougher road to hoe than you hoped it would be? James Stalzer did a masterful job, and uh, those of us that are you know totally in the weeds on this every single issue of these elections understand that there's the money is there for any amount, any time anybody wants to run who's a viable candidate. Money's going to be there on either side. Georgia is a toss-up state, and we are tossing up two U.S. Senate seats and the House of the Georgia General Assembly. The very significant gains that were made by the Democrats in the House in 2018, uh, cutting in half the lead the Republican majority had, 
is funneled up an enormous amount of energy and an enormous amount of money on both sides of the aisle. You really can't spend that kind of money. When the Republicans brag that they're going to beat Bob Trammell with a million dollars to beat him, how do you spend a million dollars in Luthersville, Georgia, that the <laughs> people who've known Bob Trammell since he was a small child and his father was a professor and mayor of Luthersville, how do you spend a million dollars there to tell voters in his community where his children go to school that somehow he's uh, an alien to them? So there's too much. James Stalzer tells us again, there's way too much money. They're spending it because they have it in ways that you cannot say is meaningful. Uh, What is true is that there are more people coming out to vote every single day that has ever happened in the history of Georgia. The tensions and the uh, advocacies are more unique this year than ever, and anything is possible. The Democrats conservatively think that we will pick up 10 seats. The Republicans think, I'm talking about the House now, think that we'll only pick up five. If the Democrats pick up 10 seats, we are coming very close to 90. And when you get that close to 91, the whole dynamic shifts. David Ralston will have to have a new plan. If the Democrats pick up that many seats, He has to have a new management plan, and it's going to be very interesting. We can pick up 16. I'm fairly confident we'll pick up at least 10. And the money is so proliferated, we can't even talk about it anymore. I apologize. I didn't mean to cut you off there, uh, Mary Mark. Uh, Tamara, just to make sure our listeners know, Bob Trammell, of course, is the Democratic minority leader in the House, and Republicans have said they're going after him big time. He's one of their uh, highest uh, priority targets. Uh, Tamara... David Perdue, I'm sorry, David Perdue, David Ralston, the Speaker of the House, uh, said about in the Salzer piece that uh, the Democrats' money is coming from Hollywood and they can't compete with Hollywood money or, and then he added, Martha's Vineyard money. Now, I don't know what's in David Ralston's heart. I assume he is genuinely a, a man uh, who embraces people of, who have very different uh, 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 lifestyles or whatever. But when you start talking Martha's Vineyard, there's something of a dog whistle in there because I think we all know Martha's Vineyard is a uh, major center for uh, 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 gay American uh, activities. Yeah, I don't know about that, but it's something, you know, you hear every year talking about, you know, Republicans slamming Democrats for getting money from Hollywood actors and from California and from New York. So that doesn't surprise me. And I think the main point of James Salzer's piece, um, and this is also true in Washington as well as the State House, is that a lot of that money, as Ed was talking about, is professional money. It's transactional money. These are these are interests that are going to support the party in power because, you know, it could help them. Maybe, maybe not, but it, it could help them get whatever legislative priority they need later on in the session. So they're going to rush to support whichever party is in power. And I think that's an important um, thing to note. And, and Salzer notes in his piece that Democrats got money from a lot of those same groups when they controlled the state house 15 years ago. Edward, you got the last word before the break. Yeah, yeah, a little additional flavor about the House and some of the other races as well. The question for Democrats is, is this going to be a wave election or is it going to be a tight election? And to a large degree, that depends on the top of the ticket. As long as President Trump remains relatively strong in state or 
in this state, or runs pretty close. I think you could you could predict uh, the the Republicans to lose no more than four or five seats in the House, in the state House this year. If, however, Trump starts to somehow tank in the last two weeks, that's when you're more likely to see what Mary Margaret is counting on that 10, 12, or more seats being lost. So look look for the top of the ticket to see whether or not a blue wave is building in Georgia. If it's still, if it's going to be close to the top of the ticket, then you don't expect too much change at the state house level. Otherwise, if it's a blue wave, All right, Katie bar the door. Sorry again for interrupting. Let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way and come back with more on political rewind. As we move into the last segment of the show, I realize in making the comment about why Ralston included Martha's Vineyard along with Hollywood, uh, you know, Ralston, I do have to say, has has held back on efforts to pass religious liberty uh, measures that would, in fact, uh, uh, negatively impact the gay community. And, and so I, I really want to be very careful uh, about uh, ascribing anything to him that he, he really shouldn't uh, have ascribed to him. I just thought it was interesting he used Martha's Vineyard. Maybe a lot of money has been coming in to uh, Democrats from Martha's Vineyard. Okay, I want to do something very quickly, if we can. Our, our listeners have asked us, about the uh, constitutional amendments on the ballot. Many of them have not yet voted. There are two constitutional amendments, and there's a state referendum. So uh, amendment number one, Tamar, authorizes dedication of fees and taxes to their intended purpose uh, as uh, put into state law. So, for instance, there's a tax, a fee charged on every new tire sold. It's supposed to go to clean up illegal dumps, but it's sometimes diverted to other uh, 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 purposes. Uh, and this just says you can't do that anymore. I'm not aware of any controversy over whether people should vote yes on this. Uh, Tomorrow, are you or anybody on the panel thinking that there's a reason to vote no? It seems pretty straightforward, but I think Ed and Mary Margaret could talk about why, as a lawmaker, you might choose to raid a fund that was previously earmarked for something else and, and kind of the logic behind that as a legislator. Edward and then well, Mary Margaret? Well, the logic behind it uh, oftentimes comes when when budgets are tight. Uh, there was a raid on certain uh, funds such as this uh, during the depths of the Great Recession. That being said, I strongly support this amendment. Uh, I believe in there should be a certain amount of truth in taxing. And when you raise money, for instance, to get rid of uh, tires uh, that are that are simply tossed into dumps, that that money ought to go there. And can I? And I would also like to put a plug in for my for my old friend and Mar, Margaret's old friend, uh, Chairman Jay Powell, who passed away last year. This was his this was his baby for a number of years. He fought to get rid of this uh, for a number of years and fought for this sort of amendment. And so I sort of t- call this the uh, the Jay Powell Memorial Constitutional Amendment. Okay, Mary <laughs> Margaret, is there a controversy about this amendment? No, there's not. I, I agree. And it, just as an example, Children's Trust Fund of voters voted to create a child abuse prevention pot of money from marriage license fees and from divorce filing fees. That money is still collected, and Sonny Purdue did away with the entire Child Abuse Prevention Council. So that's always been my exhibit A. Jay Powell was right. I support this amendment. The sovereign immunity amendment is probably more substantively complicated and correct. 
And we can yes. get a little bit in the weeds yes. on that if you'd like to. I was on the Court Reform Commission. Uh, this will be the third time that the General Assembly has passed an effort to correct what the Supreme Court of Georgia did to very limit the opportunity of citizens to sue the state in injunctive and declaratory relief actions. Um, we are going to get in the weeds here a little bit, but uh, both Governor Deal and Governor Kemp vetoed those efforts to uh, take away a defense that Chris Carr was holding very close to his arc to discourage lawsuits against the state. It's not right to say in 2020 that the king can do no right. That's not correct legally. It's not correct in terms of good government. And so voters need to support the sovereign immunity bill that allows voters and people of Georgia more opportunity to sue the state on issues of injunction and declaratory relief. And I could give a lecture of about 90 minutes on that, but I bet it wouldn't be a good idea. Edward, the amendment says waive state and local sovereign immunity for violation of state laws, state and federal constitutions. Go ahead now. I, I don't need 90 minutes to support this constitutional amendment. If the state does you wrong, you ought to be able to go to court to correct that. And and that's the bottom line. And um, the state Supreme Court made its ruling based on the law that existed and the Constitution has existed. Uh, that's what uh, constitutional amendments are for, to correct or, or to fix uh, holes in the Constitution. And this is one amendment that will greatly impact a lot of Georgians. And so hopefully it will pass and pass by a wide margin. To sort of continue with it, there is one third one that I think is also important and may be a little bit difficult for folks to understand. And it's way below the radar uh, radar screen, but it's, it's extremely important. It deals with uh, exempting certain charities from property taxes, uh, which will be extremely beneficial to uh, entities such as Habitat for Humanity that are building houses uh, and helping with folks uh, and helping with the, the housing shortage, particularly with low-income folks. And that amendment, too, needs to pass and pass by a wide margin. All right. Um, thank you for that very quick uh, look at the amendments. Um, I want to do one last thing. And, Edward, you brought it up a minute ago. Um, it, early, I guess it was late last week, Tom Edsel, who is a wonderful opinion writer for The New York Times, uh, wrote a piece on the fact that uh, Democrats had better not get overconfident about Joe Biden winning uh, the White House quite yet. The New York Times followed up with another story about it this week. Um, and although, tomorrow every poll points toward Biden winning, the, um, the, the concern that Democrats are beginning to see, and, and uh, Edsel pointed this out, uh, so did uh, the Cook Report. It part new party registrations in key states, key battleground states. Tomorrow are favoring Republicans by wide margins. So, for instance, in Florida, uh, uh, 195,000 new Republicans have been added to the rolls, and only 98,000 Democrats. In Pennsylvania, Republicans are have added 135,000 compared to Democrats, 57,000. North Carolina, the margins for Republicans are much higher. So uh, now new registrations don't necessarily equate to votes, but it is one of the factors that are making Democrats squeamish as they enter the last phase of this race. 
Exactly. And and this is a race that, that, like last time, could very well come down to a couple swing states. So even changes at, at the precinct level, which is which is sort of what happened in 2016 with Hillary Clinton looking at, at battleground states and battleground precincts, that, that could be, um, you know, a really bad indicator. At the same time, as you mentioned, uh, voter registration is very different from somebody actually showing up to the polls. And, and if these are folks who, who didn't vote in the past, it might be more of a challenge to get them to come out. So uh, that's only half of the way they're registering them. Well, this gets back Edward. to my point about uh, the last two weeks, you need to be concentrating on getting your base out. And uh, these uh, surveys uh, that have taken place, New York Times did an excellent article on it, as we've mentioned, showing uh, the enthusiasm by Republicans in terms of registering to vote uh, does should cause some pause. And quite frankly, I, I've, I've noticed that uh, Vice President Biden is encouraging uh, his supporters, don't get complacent, don't get overconfident. Uh, there's still a big race going on, and this is one indicator, um, because there is, interestingly enough, there is an enthusiasm gap. Now, mind you, Democrats are, are greatly enthusiastic about voting for Biden, but by percentages, Republicans are even more enthusiastic about voting for, for President Trump. And and so the question is, how will this all play out? Now, mind you, there may be a fair number of folks who are enthusiastic about simply voting against President Trump, but the, the enthusiasm is, is what's going to drive the last two weeks and then let us see what happens on November 3rd, and then with the results as they trickle in over the following week. Mary Margaret, uh, Republicans have been touting for a long time that they've got a much stronger ground game here in Georgia for turning out voters than Democrats do. Um, uh, do you think that there is some truth to that? And do you worry about what new registrations say, not in Georgia specifically necessarily, but across the in, in battlegrounds, other battleground states? I think the new registrations in Georgia are more towards younger people and more towards uh, people who are not old white men. Uh, so in Georgia, I think the registrations are, are more promising for Democrats. Complacency is not a word that I would ever use when President Trump is in office. Uh, we are in extremely dangerous times, in my view. Um, I'm very concerned that the voters are becoming more and more and more turned off by the, the chaos and the negativity and the Russian investigations and, and the daily drama that President Trump is creating by total misinformation, not to mention the fact that people are still dying at significant rates of the virus nationally. Uh, the uptick in the virus and the unbelievably chaotic and uh, disastrous uh, things that come out of President Trump's mouth about uh, Dr. Fauci, if nothing else, Fauci, if nothing else. It's very, very frightening times. Complacency is not the problem. It is whether people are turned off and whether or not they need to understand how important coming to vote is. It is uh, about turnout. Uh we are, Mary Margaret, you get the last word on today's show. We are completely out of time. So, uh, Mary Margaret Oliver, Edward Lindsay, Tamar Hallerman, thank you so much for a really uh, terrific conversation. Uh, we're back again tomorrow. As I said, we're going to look at Amy Coney Barrett and the impact she will have if she is confirmed to the Supreme Court, um, plus other political issues as well. Uh, until then, I'm Bill Nygut. So, take care, stay healthy, please wear a mask. And go out and get a flu shot. See you all tomorrow.